Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett. Uh, today, we have an awesome guest. Uh, we have Tanya Drake, who is a regional vice president at the Western Governors University. I think I said that right. Please you feel did. free to correct. All right. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so yeah, so today we're going to talk about uh, technology and higher ed, and we'll probably go uh, several different places. But uh, Tanya, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Well, first, thank you so much for reaching out. I'm excited to be on your podcast. Awesome. Uh, We're happy to have you. Yeah. So I use the pronoun she and her, and I also identify as mixed race. My father is Cowichan, which is First Nations up um, on Vancouver Island, but I was born and raised in the States. And um, so I really appreciate being on here. I've been in higher ed for, I don't know, more years than I I care to to mention, I guess. (laughs) Um, But I... You know, I've been in higher ed my entire career in lots of different fields, had the opportunity to work for um, public universities, um, for community colleges, um, and now, as you mentioned, as the regional vice president for Western Governors University. And, you know, Western Governors University serves the entire nation. We've been a private nonprofit for 26 years. Oh, wow. And... Uh, are very excited to serve working adults. Um, you know, it's it's interesting, the history um, of our university, 19 Western governors got together, thus the name Western Governors University, um, and decided to leverage technology. And so we're truly sort of this hybrid um, in the sense of like a technology company meets higher ed um, and really have pulled together a unique experience, a learning experience for students um, who have a lot of knowledge and skills um, and just need to demonstrate that knowledge through a competency-based model and then they can move on and and get their degree. Um, So excited to work for an institution that's very innovative and creative and and just very forward thinking. That's awesome. Where is, where is, does it have a central headquarters or is it just 100% remote? So we do have a headquarters. It is in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we serve the entire nation. So uh, any student can participate. It The coursework is all online. Um, we do have some in-person for some workforce areas. For example, teacher education, um, we do have demonstration teaching so students can get into the classroom um, and apply their skills, as well as um, our clinicals for our health professions um, are in-person uh, within clinicals, hospitals. But all the coursework is 100% online. That's nice. one. I think that when... Um... Before COVID hit, we thought that this online education was going to be a fad. You know, we thought it was going to eventually go the way of the dodo bird, but it's managed to stick around. And what's really amazing is like more and more every year we hear statistics where students are leaving uh, brick and mortar institutions and going to fully online courses. When I did my doctor doctoral work, I did my doctoral work on just that fully online education and completion rates because I finished mine in 2016, and at the time, um, edX, Coursera, 
And what was the other one? I can't think what the other, but they came out and they partnered with universities to offer these online courses. And a lot of people were enrolling in those courses, but not completing, you know, and um, there were a lot of terms thrown around about, you know, window dressing and, you know, what this was. Students were looking to see, but they were committed to completing. And so I think that in, in reality, what we've seen with online education is really a real good option for especially non-traditional students, students who weren't able to complete their degree while they were, you know, in high school or college age, you know, we're seeing more value in this. And the fact that you actually have a clinical piece is absolutely exceptional. You know, of course, they do their practice in, in hospitals and clinical settings, but that's just pretty amazing. Did you think that that would be what would what was the outcome for your institution post-COVID? Well, we've learned a lot in distance education and online learning, and, and we had the advantage of doing it for 26 years, whereas most of higher ed just learned in the last couple of years <laughs> during COVID, yeah. um, in which everything pivoted to online. So I will say that we had the advantage of trial and error and learning um, what works and what doesn't. Um, what we did learn is what we kind of thought early on that high um that high touch really is important to students, um, regardless of whether you're in person or remote learner. And so we did assign a faculty mentor to every single student. So that faculty mentor meets with a student one-on-one -on -one each week, and they start with the student and end with the student throughout their entire program. So they have access to a person. Um, sometimes that faculty mentor serves as a coach, a mentor, um, sometimes they just listen um, and help direct them to the resources that they need. And so, you know, I, I think it's really important that they're not alone through this process, that they have someone during that journey um, that cares for the work that they're doing and is a champion for them to make it through. You know, I, I think about some of my early technology um, and how I have adopted that into my own life um, and how companies have learned. I think about my online banking experience when I was young um, and having to go into the bank to do everything or to, you know, um, reconcile my checkbook once a month. Um, and now I think about my banking experience and the use of technology in that. And I would probably not go to a bank that I had to go in person all the time um, to do the work I needed to do. Um, I have really benefited from the leverage um, of technology in that space. And I think we're starting to see the benefits of learning online for some learners. And I say some because higher education needs to be a strong ecosystem for all types of learners. Right. Remote is one type of learning. In-person and traditional university serves another type of students who is expecting a different experience um, and a different learning style. And I think we need a broad ecosystem in order to meet those needs across um, the U.S. And so I think we have had the advantage of um, using technology, using it in a way that every student benefits in an individualized learning um, because it's also at their own pace. I don't know if I mentioned that. So students get to take coursework and once they um, establish their competency, um, they can move on to their next class. And so students at WGU um, usually graduate in about two and a half years for their bachelor's and about nine months to a year for their master's. So wow. there's um, lots of efficiencies for them to get that return on investment um, and get back out into the workforce. Um, so there's 
um, lots of success in being able to demonstrate and and not waste time on on subjects that they already know um, and just be able to move on to the areas that they need to concentrate on. And that's amazing. I, I will tell you, so I did not get my first college degree until I was 42 years old. Um, I went to a historically black college. I got three degrees from them. I got two masters and one, I mean, two bachelors and one master's. I was a non-traditional student in every way possible. My first day on the campus, right? So I have no idea what to expect. I haven't been on a college campus. And my first day at school, a girl walks in with a bra and a bikini. And I was just shocked at that. It's just, you know, it's just like, oh my God, this is what school looks like. And it was really like that. People dress weird. They, they interacted weirdly. And, you know, when you raise your hand, you heard all this noise from the people in the back. Put your hand down. We're trying to get out early. You know, in this kind of thing, I think that it's really amazing what you just described, you know, for students to learn at their own pace. So it took me, I graduated from North Carolina Central in two and a half years with two and a half degrees. My master's was a year long torture. We'll say we got to go to, um, what's the golf place in North Carolina? Pinehurst. We we spent, we did a lot of our practicum in, Pine, uh, in uh, whatever that town is called, but where Pinehurst is. It was really fun, but it was arduous. What's really amazing about what you just said is one, they, they don't have to spend a lot of time on, you know, like one of the courses when I first went to Central was understanding the campus. Like I'm only going to be here for however much time, but what do I need to know? So I had to take a whole course on the campus. And like, to me, it was a waste of time. So that's wonderful. Do you have in your work and what you've seen, how do you see your work influencing other universities and other academic institutions? Well, we did get a lot of questions during the pandemic about how do you do this and what works best for that. And uh, we do have some networks now. Um, we have something called WGU Labs. It's sort of our applied research arm of WGU. And so we're starting to leverage that knowledge to benefit all of higher education. There's something called the College Innovation Network. Um, because campuses are utilizing different technology and there are lots of different vendors and options, an institution, particularly a small private or maybe some of the community colleges who, who don't have the knowledge and expertise to be able to test all these big systems or know what's best for their students, um, we're starting to build a knowledge base about what products work best for different institutions um, and what those experiences um, are like so that we can um, help institutions make the best decisions around technology. Um, and what would be best for their needs or their services. And so in some of those ways, we are not only sharing our best practices, but also leveraging the best practices of higher education across the country to help each other out, to know how best we utilize technology um, for learners and for their success. That said, I think we're all about to pivot pretty quickly with this AI coming out. <laughs> and I think all eyes are on um, conversations about where will it go? And then in higher ed, what do we need to do to prepare, prepare our workforce um, for the needs and working with um, artificial intelligence? And more importantly, what is our higher education? What is our social responsibility um, in that as well? And I think those are broader conversations going on, but I, I know looking at the horizon, um, many of us in higher education are starting to have those conversations. And that's wonderful. Yeah. A AI may be replacing, uh, <laughs> like everything, everything gets replaced, it seems like, and uh, the AI stuff is is very scary. 
when you mentioned uh, like uh, mostly like adult education in at the campus, uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot on here is just sort of how like uh, automation is replacing a lot of people's jobs, and it's sort of neat because people's jobs are getting replaced. People need to learn new skills, and like maybe what you majored in when you were in college, you know, eighteen through twenty-two, is probably like you know not applicable at all nowadays. So having like a way for adults to get like a new education seems very important. Do you run into many people that are like switch or do, do you find that many of your students are coming back to school either because uh, technology has changed their job or they need because of technology, they need like a completely new career or are those not related? Uh, I think that there's a big wave of both, Drew. So we do see a big wave of individuals who are staying within their field, but they need to advance in their degree. Um, teacher education is a great example of that. As, as education has changed, um, many of our teachers are going back for a master's to um, either specialize in certain areas um, or to ensure that they have the latest knowledge and information. Um, we... We actually have seen a downturn in one of the areas, and that's in our health professions. We're seeing fewer um, RNs to go into BSN, and I think it's just due to the the long pandemic um, and the stress on that um, that group of individuals um, to be able to then concentrate on going into a BS uh, degree when they're so in need and they're um, so maxed out. Um, so I anticipate that will change, um, hopefully in the future. Uh, but IT is through the roof. So our College of IT is seeing huge, huge amount of um, individuals who are pivoting, like you said, and re-careering, who decided that, you know, they they see a lot of um, need and there's a lot of um, high demand and high wages in technology, um, and it's not just in urban centers. We did some research, at least in the Northwest, um, on rural areas and rural uh, job demand. And we're seeing a large amount of industry accepting remote workers. Um, and so now, now rural areas, um, you know, you can stay in your hometown and get a really high paying job as long as you have some of those tech skills. Um, so we are seeing a wave of individuals, both rural and urban, who are doing just like you said, Drew, just pivoting and like making wholesale changes as far as like their careers. Um, but we're seeing, we're seeing, I would say, waves of different groups for different reasons. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. I think that in, in the grand scheme of things, we probably will see more of this. The question is, is what does this mean to the brick and mortar students? I mean, institutions. What happens to an institution that is built for 20, 30,000 students to be on their campus and half of those students now go to digital learning? You know, there's got to be somewhere we were thinking about this and thinking about how to still, you know, purport that same type of education that you get in face-to-face -face or brick and mortar institutions in digital online. So it was very refreshing to hear that you do have this network and you're sharing your experiences with others. The question I have for you, so where are the majority of your students coming from? Are they are they coming from all over the United States or are they central to a region? So we did divide the country into seven different regions, um, and that's why I oversee the Pacific Northwest. But we do have individuals who um, develop partnerships across the entire nation. 
The way WG started is we started with Western Governors Association and thus the Western Governors University, but we do serve the entire U.S. as I mentioned. Um, but we had a few governors step up and say, hey, you know what, we want to be partners um, with WGU. And so we saw some emergence in certain states. So um, WGU Indiana, WGU Washington, WGU Texas, WGU North Carolina um, had stepped forward and said, we want to partner for workforce development within their states. So early on, our university really focused on what we called state affiliates, those states who stepped up and said, um, we want to partner in a more significant way. Um, but we weren't serving the entire nation equally. So you see big pockets of students like in Washington, um, where we have large number of students, um, more than our our population share probably should. Um, and so now as a university, we're trying to expand access. And so we, while we still have large pockets of students in the Northwest um, and in Texas, um, we're being more intentional about our outreach in the Southeast and the Northeast where we traditionally haven't had um, as much outreach. And so we're starting to see larger growth, um, but because they're smaller regions, the percentages, um, are increasing, but the numbers are still fairly small. So we do see differentiation across the country um, and quite frankly, in how online education is received um, in different parts of the country. So we have a lot of interest in the Southeast, but we have a harder time converting um, in the Southeast, there's just a lot of competition. Well, you guys know um, in your area, the competition in higher education in the Southeast is very different than higher education and competition in the Northwest. Um, and so we see those differentiations across the country in higher ed. Yeah. And, and so what you, you mentioned technology a lot, and we all know that now everything is rooted in technology in some way. So where are the technology issues and how do you see them changing with things like artificial intelligence or automation or some of the other things that are going, do you see that influencing your curriculum and how you recruit? I think it will. Um, how I think is still emerging. So, you know, from a student perspective, we saw during the pandemic, it was um, a digital equity issue who had access um, to online and resources being able to just physically log in and, and do remote work. Um, and so we needed to partner with um, companies like T-Mobile to create an online access scholarship. So I, I do think remote learning, there there's still a long ways to go across the country about just having access to the internet. And that impacts more than education impacts um, economic development in communities or access to even food, food deserts. Um, so we are seeing that as, a continual issue. Um, and as we emerge into an artificial intelligence, I think that gap will grow and grow. Um, because if you don't have access to emerging technologies, um, I think communities' abilities to grow and change will be impacted. That said, um, it's hard to say what's going to happen with AI. Um, I think we're all playing around. Um, Drew's a little nervous. I'm a little excited. Um, but I think that, and I'm, you know, and I'm fearful. I'm a little fearful. Um, so we've I've got to covered. Yeah. I played with it a little, um, but not enough to be dangerous, Drew. Um, so I, you know, I've even learned from my kiddos um, who are using it in very different ways. 
um, and starting to learn how we use it and how we will benefit um, from using it, I think will be really, really interesting. So some of the work that is going on in my kids' classroom is knowing that artificial intelligence can whip out essays or whip out um, responses, those types of things. Um, teachers are starting to grade more on what are the inputs, what are they asking it to do and why and for what reason, um, and how then are you going to utilize that information, I think are intriguing. Yeah. Um, I'm also intrigued about the possibility of how that changes us um, as a society and if there are some technology advantages of doing some basic work, um, it may free us up to be more creative, innovative, um, dynamic um, in how we approach work, which I think is refreshing also. Um, but I am I'm cautious um, because I think that there um, could be also um, some harm done. And so understanding our social responsibility. I don't think we fully understood our social responsibility when we launched the internet. We didn't think about social responsibility with all this social media. And now with artificial intelligence coming out, now is the time we really have to figure out what is our responsibility um, in launching um, technology that could be helpful or harmful to our earth, to people, to, to lots of different things. I think that marginalized communities suffer most. I mean, what you were describing, food deserts and people. My husband is a third grade teacher and it was a nightmare. It was children didn't know how to start Zoom. They wanted to hide their backgrounds, you know, and no one prepared them for that. And schools, as, as you can imagine, being overworked and understaffed, didn't have time to educate the students on how to use a technology like Zoom, you know, and what the what the pitfalls of it, because was it a year into Zoom at Duke where we, Duke, Zoom finally locked it out because you'd have to be in the middle of a Zoom conversation and someone from somewhere else would join your, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, these kinds of things. And then, you know, with AI as well, in a different way, not, not chat GPT, but on the other side, and in poor communities, insurance rates are higher because of artificial intelligence. They were already high because of bias and discrimination. But you add AI to this and you get another place. You know, I love to pick on Google and their facial recognition software. When it saw someone of a certain complexion, it put up a picture of a gorilla. We have a long way to go and the safeguards are not in place. And it doesn't seem like anybody's working to put those safeguards in place. So like learning on the job. The problem is, it's the consequences of learning in the job. Drew? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard. Uh, the, this is maybe like changing the topic a little bit, but what all this makes me, I guess this sort of shakes my initial thought of like, I'd always thought like online education would increase belonging. Like what I think one thing that we hear a lot is like people from marginalized communities, when they go to a college campus, like do not feel like they belong. They feel like, uh, can't like, Hey, I paid my tuition university gave me a big hug and said come on over here and you know once they cash that check it's a do whatever you want like right good luck and yeah. i always thought maybe technology would help that because if everybody's just doing online learning like there's like in my brain there's not just as much like cultural uh pitfalls yeah 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 exactly exactly but uh hearing you all talk now i'm sort of flipping that around because now like technology is a requirement to all of these things and if you can't even like if you don't have the ability to get online and attend these things then i mean that's way beyond belonging that's like 
whatever the step before belonging is just like entering the door. Yeah. I think that, you know, a lot of places put hot spots like here in, in Durham for the public school that created hot spots and gave kids hot spots to take home with them. And that too came with pitfalls, right? It came with problems, right? Because if you don't know how to join it, you don't know anybody who gets the information. Can, it has some of the same issues initially with Zoom. But but more importantly, I think that what where we are with this is like for black and brown communities and, you know, even making that statement black and brown because I do not use people of color people of color is demoralizing it's not a good term but even black some black people don't identify as black some brown people don't identify as brown so you bring all of this to an online forum or an online class you know and not 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 including the bias and prejudices this and you know like you know Drew I think you remember this there was a a time when we were sending emails about tone, like there was a tone in your email. You had to tone your email down so that somebody wasn't offended and you had no offense intended, you know, but yeah. so navigating that in online education is, is what Dr. Drake said. It's still growing, you know, right. It's still being developed And what I, what I will say all the time is like online banking needs regulation, online education needs safeguards to put in place so that children aren't susceptible to harm, that adults know how to communicate without offending each other. These safeguards need to be developed and whether it's developed in higher ed or whether it's developed in government, it needs to be developed somewhere to protect us. And it's like we talk about all the time, Drew, you know, you see all these ads for medication, you know, and so here's this commercial that says, hey, come take this medication and you might die if you take it, but it's going to cure what's hurting you. Where's the education before that? You know, so do you need to ask your doctor for this medication? All of these things are in front of us, and it doesn't seem like they've been mapped out. There's no clear roadmap how to get from one end to the other. This, And I think technology might be the solution, but it also might be the problem. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that we learned a lot uh, at WGU around curriculum and assessment. So because we're competency-based, I will say our secret sauce is assessments, right? So you have to have the assessments, right, in order to um, identify competency. And one of the cool things that we did is it's um, as unbiased, I think, as we can get as far as um, the instructors who grade the assessments, they don't know who the students are. Um, so great. a student could be in North Carolina, they could be in Washington, they could be in any part of the country, um, regardless of gender, race. Um, if you establish your competency, you can move on. Um, and so I think we have seen taking some of that biases away. Um, that said, there's still a lot that we need to grow and learn. And my experience um, is language changes, um, how we use language changes um, we're continuously evolving um, and growing, and we need to do that for education also. Um, what we say, how we teach, what the curriculum is, needs to be constantly reviewed um, to ensure that we are benefiting those who have traditionally not been successful in higher education. That's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. What sort of, uh, what are some other ways that people can help get biases out of Maybe not necessarily assessments, but other things like you were mentioning, you know, sort of anonymizing the uh, assessments, which is like a great way because, you know, you don't see a name, you don't have any preconceived notions, you have nothing like, are there other ways that uh, people can use to do that? I know, like, uh, some folks do that, do things similar in uh, interviews where, you know, you'll wipe people's name and background or not 
maybe not their work background, but all the personal stuff out. Like, I guess I'm just curious, are there other good ways to like scientifically reduce bias and things like that? Well, I'm sure that there's um, there's lots of great ways. I can tell you some examples of, of some successes that we've had. Um, we also have what's called a national curriculum. So your university, you may have five different faculty members who um, are responsible for developing curriculum, administer the, administering the curriculum, um, doing the assessment, and then signing the grade. So if all of them are English faculty members, their class might be a little bit different, um, even though their outcomes are supposed to be the same. And that's academic freedom. And I think that works great for some traditional institutions. We have a national curriculum. So every student who goes through our coursework um, all gets the same national um, curriculum. So anytime we do do updates or changes, it can change nationally and we can measure the impact on that. And so, you know, some of it is just trying things, doing the best that we can, but then measuring and being willing to adjust and make changes um, when we know that things are not successful or things that might be um, impacting that success, I think is incredibly important. Um, we have done more research um, more recently on just sort of the steps um, and just following the data and where are some of our gaps. And so we call them hero moments. Um, hero moments are things like we found particularly um, for, I'll use your term, black and brown um, students like myself, um, who maybe have applied to the university, um, but didn't move on to that next step. One hero moment was they didn't have the resources to get the transcript sent to us. And we're like, wow, we could solve that. Like that's an easy solve for us. We'll work with the National Student Clearinghouse. They can send it to us electronically. We can bypass the you know small amount that the student might have to um, pay for that and resolve those issues. And so ensuring that we're being responsive and understanding what the barriers are and then being proactive um, to eliminate the barriers that we can. Yeah. And, and there are many. Um, I'm sure, sure. One, yeah. one, one of the so many. is applying for a job, right? And so even though there are ways to anonymize it, there are also problems. So if you look at a student who went to an historically Black college, you automatically assume that's a Black or Brown student, automatically. And that might not be true. But that's also, you know, a demerit, right? So the student might get dumb. You know, they might have all these experiences, but they look all the way down and, you know, we've got applications to do this sorting for us to get us through the first level of noise in the application process. But then later on, you get caught by it, right? And uh, I talked to Drew about this a lot. You know, black and brown people are often last in, first out, or first in and first out, you know? So you have to, there's, in order to address the biases that exist in life and as a whole, there needs to be an effort to address bias in our whole society, right? So how we see people, right? So um, Dr. Drake, you don't know this, but I got very sick and all my hair fell out. You know, I have worn an Afro before, but never, never like this. And there are so many assumptions made about who I am. I'm an angry black woman. I'm not, but that's what people think. You know, the way I talk, the way I phrase things, my voice is very aggressive. I never knew these things, you know, like, how do you get this out of a simple conversation? But it's easy to when you look and you can see the person and make your assumptions and assume your assumptions are correct. 
And I think that in higher ed, more than any place else, if you look at completion rates between black and brown people and white people, they're hundreds of miles ahead of us. I mean, like the completion rates are not even close, which is why when you look at the workforce, it's not diverse. You know, it's why Google could release facial recognition software with only white men developing the technology. You got exactly what you expect, sameness. We have to move away from sameness and see more reasons to be inclusive, you know, I've become a diversity expert and I consult with a lot of companies. You know, I, I tell people product, productivity equals inclusivity. It's, it goes hand in hand. If you don't have inclusive, diverse people, you don't have successful or more successful products or, or outcomes. You have to have more ways to see productivity and inclusive as a part of a thought, you know, and so I applaud you what you're doing. I applaud what you are coming up with. And, you know, if you need me, I'm happy to help. I, you know, I don't charge a whole arm and a leg, just the arm. But, uh, you know, <laughs> if I can help, please, I'm happy to help because I would really like to see us do more in education. And there, I will tell you, in a lot of ways, education is is fixed and dilated. You know, it's, they they don't believe they can move. That's why higher education and online learning is still a challenge. And what you have done, what it sounds like you have done is overcome that challenge. What you have to do is get these other universities to see the value of online education and that it's not necessarily taken away from their brick and mortar. Because think about this, they reduce their carbon footprint. You know, they reduce how much money they have to spend in utilities. You know, they give their faculty a break. You know, you don't have to drive and, you know, navigate where you're going to park and all that stuff and get your, you're at home or wherever you're working from. And you can do that without the impact. So I am so grateful that you talked to us and I'm so grateful you came on and shared these stories and Drew will make sure we get it into some format and get it out there because I think it's very important for people to hear this, what you've done. It's very, 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 very important. And thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I think what you guys are doing is equally important and that is sharing the message, um, getting out there, the importance of how we use technology and using it responsibly and how it connects to higher education. Um, you've created a wonderful platform and just applaud you for, for all the efforts you're doing. And thank you one more time for, um, in, I guess, having me on board also. So I appreciate <laughs> it. Anything else I, I can do to help support you, um, I'm happy to as well. I appreciate that. Everybody. Except for watching those uh, horror movies, Drew. I, I can't uh, help you with that. Oh, I, I got some non-horror movie recommendations too. Don't worry. I got an end, endless recommendation of movie list. <laughs> but uh, thank you both for today. This is a, a really good and interesting one. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners as well. Uh, if you have questions, comments, anything at all, feel free to email us at imminentteachnology at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you. Uh, and thank you.